Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll hear from someone who's become a familiar voice in Ohio, the director of the Ohio Department of Health, talking about the coronavirus. Courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light will have a roundtable discussion about various political issues. His guests include Ohio Republican Party strategist Terry Casey, Professor Suzanne Marilli from Capital University, and Democratic State Representative Cedric Denson of Cincinnati. Toward the bottom of the hour, I'll talk with someone from the U.S. Census Bureau. You should be receiving information about the census in the mail. More about that coming up. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Rita Sorenen. She heads the Columbus-based Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. First up on Columbus Perspective, most of you have probably become familiar with Dr. Amy Acton, who is the director of the Ohio Department of Health. In addition to updating Ohioans each afternoon on the coronavirus situation in Ohio, she's gained national attention and acclaim for her easy-to-understand explanations and honest assessment of the situation. This week on Wednesday, Dr. Acton took us through the history of this virus and how Ohio got to where it is today. We're presenting that portion of her update from Wednesday, which also includes valuable advice about what steps to take if you become concerned about being infected. This runs about 15 minutes. Dr. Amy Acton, director of the Ohio Department of Health. Let me tell you a little bit about Ohio, and I say this because it's so important We states need to all see each other in the same boat. But Ohio, which was very, very late in our ability to test, is actually the seventh most populous state in this country. We are 11.7 million, give or take a little bit, and those are our numbers. We have major, major companies, global companies here, myself as a professor of global health. worked with the the folks at Ohio State, the Ohio State University, who actually came up with the concept of zoonotic diseases, the disease like we're seeing here that leapt from animals to humans, that studied this concept of us, and they coined this term, one health. In this world, we are one world, and we are one health. And zoonotic diseases are actually the greatest indicator of that fact, and we're seeing that unfold right now. As far back as the beginning of this disease, which was the outbreak in Wuhan when it was most known to the general public was December 31st. And I heard about it very, right around that time in the first week of January on a call with um, some folks, a global uh, CDC health folks were talking about a zoonotic disease and what was going on in the market in Wuhan. I don't know if everyone knows, but the state of Ohio is actually a sister state with the province of Hubei. So we have all these businesses who are doing business all over in China, um, and we also have our universities, and at the time, Um, It was the beginning of spring term for the Ohio State University, and many, we have some of the largest number of public and private universities, many people from the coast send their kids here for our small liberal arts colleges. And so we were having many students and faculty who had traveled. We had Chinese-American citizens and others going back home for Lunar New Year, and we had, you know, many faculty coming back, students who had traveled abroad. And it was January 15th, um, actually, um, that we had the return to the U.S. and the symptom onset of U.S. case um, number one. Actually, on the 13th, we had U.S. case number two had returned. 
Um, and so we actually began rolling out our pandemic planning at the Ohio Department of Health around that time. We began to use our pandemic plan. Um, and that first case in Japan was January 16th. On January 17th, the CDC published a HAN, a health advisory, where it gave the very first people under investigation definition that our epidemiologists began to use. And it was a very strict definition by fact. It was the, the symptoms of people who were in Wuhan City, travelers. This is not uncommon. I want people to understand this is not quarterbacking you know, after the game. This is just the facts. We were understanding this virus as it unfolded. But you have to understand our very first sense of a case while we already had travelers, was people related to this market and, and, and to Wuhan. Um, January 20th, um, the Washington State confirmed case number one. U.S. case number two was identified by the PUI. The first case in South Korea was known. Um, and CDC Chicago confirmed the U.S. case number two. We saw our first cases in France. This is January, late January. Our first case in Canada, our first case in Australia. January 27th was the first case in Germany. And for those of us in Ohio, we were first made aware of it as a population because we had our first people under investigation by that CDC case definition at Miami University. Two students, if you remember. And we sent our specimens to the CDC, and those test results came back not until February 2nd, because it took us that amount of time to send the case and turn around that. So we were relying on cases going through the CDC. All the while, we had people returning from business travel and conferences all over the world. On February 1st, we extended that PUI definition based on the CDC to Hubei province or people with severe symptoms or hospitalization after travel to China. We again on February 2nd got our first negative results and we began to test and actually tested eight different people under investigation through March that ended up being negative. Travel restrictions were implemented February 3rd and on February 7th, we got our first test kit from the CDC. Unfortunately, we were one of the handful of states that two of the three reagents did not work, so we continued to rely on CDC testing. All this time, we began to receive word, of course, of other, the uh, Diamond Princess. We had other travelers returning. We began to monitor. And in Ohio, whenever we had mixed guidance, we took the most conservative of the guidance. So as we had travelers return from the 11 airports, our local health departments worked with those folks. Over 250 people self-quarantined as returning travelers from China um, for 14 days. They voluntarily did that and we monitored them. We did our first tabletop exercise as a cabinet um, under our governor during mid-February. But of course, on February 2016th, we saw the first market crash. And on February 27th, the governor and I did a press conference um, really beginning to help the public understand um, what this virus is, and that was at Metro Health in Cleveland. Um, and that was very important because we made a promise to you that we would tell you everything we know as we know it. And that's when our, our dialogues with you began. On February 20, 
8th, the CDC changed the definition of, of PUI again to people with severe symptoms um, with no alternating explanation. We began to realize that some of our cases that looked like the flu could possibly have been people sick with this. Um, and of course, then in late February, we saw the cases on the coast of people, our folks from Ohio, returning from conferences like APAC and Biogen, the CPAC conference. And that's when we began to realize, even though we did not have widespread testing yet, that we were already seeing people in Ohio who are at risk. By March 3rd and March 4th, we made the very difficult decisions watching what was happening around the world, watching what we were seeing in Italy, watching what we were seeing from our colleagues and their advice to act early and not wait because we knew two weeks would make a difference from our colleagues in Washington. We made some very difficult decisions around the Arnold. And that began our look at mass gatherings and the beginning of moving into mitigation. We also, on March 5th, received our test kit. It took us the two days it takes to validate. We initially set up our kit um, on the weekend of March 6th, and on March 7th, we validated it 8th, and on the 9th, we came to you with our first positive three cases. So our ability to rapidly test, we began to see cases, and the additional cases have come since then. All of this is very important for me to tell you because I think a lot of the decisions we're making now about testing and where supplies go, our reality is that we have limited resources, we have limited PPE, and we will never know, just through our cases that we have so far, we know we have widespread community transmission. And we have to assume, remember, our initial date of onset of symptoms of one of our known cases was February 7th. So we all have to assume that it is amongst us, it probably has been here, and if we decide to allocate resources just based on number of cases, we'll, we'll be missing the mark. Because in Ohio, we will not know those numbers. We may never know fully who all was exposed during this time. And right now, we are going to limit our resources and our testing to those who are hospitalized and are healthcare workers. You already know through the news that we have a shortage of swabs, and even though we ramped up our testing capability, we have extraordinary, you know, we have the Cleveland Clinic, which is an international, some of the best hospitals in the world in Ohio, and they have done that. They ramped up their ability to test, but we have a shortage of these things. And so with them and with our other hospitals, we're talking about limiting our testing to those that are hospitalized and most sick and most at risk. For those of you at home, I know that us talking about taking this issue of testing in some ways off the table for most of us. The 80% of us who will stay home is a very scary thought. But I can tell you this, even if you get tested, even if I were tested today and was negative, it does not mean I do not have the, the disease right now. It might just be too early in the disease process. I don't yet have the viral loads. And even if I do test positive, for me as an otherwise healthy person, it just, when I start having symptoms and I talk to my doctor and they do a good case history with me, they will tell me to stay at home. And whether I'm positive or negative, it really doesn't matter because, you know, as a doctor, most people who get the flu often are not tested. As a doctor, I might say, you know what, you sound like you have the flu. I want you to be at home. I want you to take the usual precautions. Keep yourself comfortable with these measures. And then call me if you have worsening symptoms. And that everyone at home is how most of us are going to ride this out. 
our doctors and clinicians out there, we need to take those good histories. If we have suspicion of anything, right now we're already telling people stay at home. We should tell them and their family to stay at home, assume they might have this, and treat it with the symptom relievers that we have, our usual um, cold and flu medicines. Because, you know, we don't have medicine for this yet, and we don't have a vaccine. And again, most of us will ride that out a very, very bad flu. But if you're riding it at home, I want you to think of these things. If you have worsening, sudden onset of worsening symptoms, you will call your provider back right away. They will talk to you. If you have difficulty breathing, if you don't have a doctor, then you should call the emergency room, and we can all put the number of the emergency room uh, nearest to us, the hospital that we would go to nearby. You call them and let them know you're coming because your symptoms have worsened. Um, you're having that difficulty breathing. Um, or you're having some other symptoms, and then after calling, you would go to the emergency room. So we don't need the test clinicians to know how to treat people. We just have to start treating them as if they have this disease. Hospitals, if you are taking these tests, it's very, very important to listen to me on this. We have the fastest testing either in our hospitals who are running the tests, the few that are. If you're a hospital that cannot run your own test, I'm not talking sending it out privately, but run your own test, you can send it to the Ohio Department of Health lab. We have a ton of ability to test now, and we can do it very quickly. We can turn that around more quickly than a lab core request can of those hospitalized or, or people that are healthcare workers or frontline workers who have symptoms. If they're a healthcare worker that does not have symptoms yet, they do not need to be tested yet. This is for people who are symptomatic. We can do that for you because there is a lag time, and even the private testers are testing the areas that are most under pressure right now, Washington, the New Yorks, the Californias. The people with the most cases are going first, but we have the capability in Ohio at our lab to test those high-risk groups. So get us those tests immediately. Send them to the Ohio Department of Health. Or if you're nearby and collaborating with a hospital like OSU or the Cleveland Clinic or the hospitals who can run the tests, you can have them work with you. Yes, as you've heard, children can get sick, and we now have the studies that are showing that our children can catch this. Again, most healthy children will do well, um, and you can keep them at home, but talk to your pediatrician. And, and, and so, you know, it is infectious. We're all carrying it. Um, so do talk to your doctor if you have concerns. I know that many of you are hearing all of this, and you're hearing all this news about testing. Our governor is asking you, this is a state of emergency. We are at war with an unseen enemy that is a virus. 80% of us will be fine, and the other 20% of us, everything the rest of us do is to protect the most vulnerable and help our healthcare system prioritize our resources well. We will get to the other side of this, and we will stick with you every step of the way and give you guidance. Do not be afraid if you cannot get a test. I want you to treat this like a very bad flu and use your common sense, and I want you to listen to our governor, and we will come to you every day and talk you through what is ahead, and we will do this together. Thank you. Dr. Amy Acton, Director of the Ohio Department of Health, 
speaking on Wednesday at her daily briefing. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Still to come, a representative from the U.S. Census Bureau and Rita Sorenen, who heads the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Here's Scott. Governor DeWine says he means business with all this. Major events, sports, schools, pretty much everything closed or at least postponed to try and contain the spread of the coronavirus. We all have to have the attitude this is a crisis and we have to get the job done. And Ohio is also under a state of emergency. Good morning, everyone. I'm Scott Light. Welcome to Face the State on this Sunday. I've got a great group of guests. Veteran journalist and senior reporter at the Columbus Dispatch, Randy Ludlow's here. Assistant professor of political science at Capital University and women's rights scholar, Dr. Suzanne Marilli. And we welcome State Representative Cedric Denson, who represents Cincinnati in District 33. He also serves in various roles for nonprofits and community organizations. And former head of the Franklin County Republican Party, longtime Republican strategist Terry Casey is back at the table. Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here. Let's kind of set the table here with what happened to address the COVID-19 strain of coronavirus. So here's the governor. We must treat this like what it is, and that is a crisis, a crisis that we have not seen most of us in our lifetimes. With schools, again, that extended spring break, that will last till April 3rd at this point. Also at this point, no plans on what to do when it comes to testing or makeup days or graduation. And then also, here's the other big one, a ban on gatherings that includes auditoriums, stadiums, large conference rooms, even fairs, parades, and festivals. So let's begin the discussion here after... You know, I think there was safe to say it was a little confusion after the Arnold. Randy, it does seem like that the DeWine administration has found some footing here when it comes to communication and policy. How's he doing? Right. Well, he he embraced the science. Mm -hmm. He listened to the people in the white coats. Uh, He erred on the side of caution. I think with a bit of pushback amid the Arnold, uh, ended in platitudes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even Democrats are, are complimenting DeWine for his handling of this crisis and contrasting it uh, to Trump's performance mm-hmm. uh, concerning the coronavirus. Uh, he has uh, taken rather strong steps, became the first in the nation to order a statewide closure of schools. Uh, he's trying to get Ohio ahead of the curve to stave off infections. Uh, we'll see how this plays out, but uh, no one could certainly accuse him of underreacting. Right, and let's ask the Democrat at the table, Representative uh, Nan Whaley, the, of course the mayor of Dayton. She said so far she thinks the governor is handling this and doing a great job. Your impressions? I think that's correct. There's no um, issues there in communication. The, we've really dealt with this public health crisis in the proper way. But it's time to turn to the economic crisis part okay. of this, which is what our caucus has been focused on for not 
just at this juncture where we're at right now, but for quite some time, we've been pushing for an emergency paid sick leave policy. Um, Illinois has found a way to do it, and it's worked. Um, there's the emergency rainy day fund that's there that we've been pushing on for that to happen. We've had Senator Sherrod Brown, who's also introduced something at the federal level, which we're working on a resolution to mirror that as well. But we've got a lot of things in the hopper. But when we really talk about this, we want to understand that there are economic impacts that right. are happening to everyday working families, and we got to figure out a way to fix that, and that's the part that we haven't addressed yeah, yet. Yeah, and for the foreseeable future, those are only going to escalate, at least sure. is what it look like. looks like. Terry, your impressions? Well, clearly, as you noted, when the governor got very aggressive on the Arnold, people wondered, is he pushing too far? Mm-hmm. Now, basically, what... Mike DeWine has pushed, the rest of the nation is kind of following, whether it's on schools or sports, because he got a lot of pushback, like from the Blue Jackets, on stopping the game. So clearly, things have turned very significantly, and it looks like definitely he's headed in the right direction. But I think the economic questions, because there's a lot of government and salaried employees that might be covered Mm -hmm. on sick leave, but there's a lot of other people Uh, particularly in the service industry, small business, where they don't have the flexibility and the cash flow to necessarily pay out everything, and people uh, work in a gig economy in a different way. So there's Mm -hmm. big economic questions, obviously the stock market. uh, There's a lot of big national and international issues still to be solved. Okay. Professor, how did you view the week? Oh, I agree that this has been an act of courage and good sense on the part of Mike DeWine. I'd only say from what I have read that closing the elementary schools where the population of children is not as at risk as older people my age and older, um, that's problematic because it's taking health care employees out of the hospitals, out of the doctor's offices and so forth. And that could actually um, make us more at risk Mm -hmm. uh, if there aren't enough um, nurses and doctors um, able to do their jobs fully because they have kids at home who can't be in daycare either. All right. Let's talk about that a little bit because the governor said the other day that he wants some state employees to telecommute, to stay at home and work. Representative, are you, are you concerned about, again, the function of state government if there are workers who are going to try this telecommuting and you know worried about government services that, that people have come to count on? I think when it comes to the services that we need, we can be smart about making sure that those workers are there and come up with some things we can do in the workplace to make sure that everybody is staying safe and setting up parameters where we're not spreading. But we definitely need the policy there because this is a time where, in my lifetime, this is the first time I'm seeing something like this. And I can only imagine that we want to be leading, as we are continuing to do in the state of Ohio, with handling this the right way to show the rest of the nation this is how you do it, and you keep everyone safe, but we also have a functioning government that's getting us the services that are most needed Mm -hmm. right now. And in state government, as an example, certain departments you can do telecommute, you can be flexible, but the biggest single state agency is rehab and corrections, the prisons, and you can't run you that. Have people there, sure. You, you got to have the people there. And in reality, the prisons are relatively short-staffed. And when you're cutting out the ability of visitors 
to see family members who are in prison, that's going to increase tensions within the walls of the prison. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of things, some things you can use technology, but there's a lot of other areas you can't. I mean, fortunately, we're not in the snow season right now, uh, but the highway department has got a lot of highways to maintain Mm -hmm. and take care of, and you can't do that by telephone or by email. Randy, to the representative's point, um, is the DeWine administration, is the next phase of this talking about the economics of this and how to address it, you think? Um, the governor told me the other day that, that he would consider the uh, the Democratic invitation to try to do something about paid sick leave. Uh, there's undeniably going to be economic pain here. Uh, parents are going to have to leave work, uh, probably low wage, to try to care for their children amid the closure of schools. Uh, indications are the coronavirus uh, crashed the market could be edging into a recession. Uh, unemployment may increase. Ohio's unemployment compensation fund is already far below federal standards mm-hmm. on uh, its stability uh, and still owes money the feds loaned them back during the Great Recession. Uh, so there is going to have to be some attention here to the economic aspects of this. Okay. Randy, do you think if it is a Biden-led ticket, does that move Arizona, does that move Ohio back into battleground? Status? Well, I, I think at this point, Trump still leads in Ohio. Mm-hmm. He won here f- four years ago by uh, eight percentage points, uh, not an insignificant win. Right. Uh, but there's storm clouds on the horizon for Trump and the Republican Party, uh, led by the response to the coronavirus and whether that's been adequate. Many contend it is not. Uh, the stock market has cratered uh, more than 20% into mm-hmm. a bear market. Uh, if you go by that measure, there's 80% chance we will have a recession. Only twice has market dropped more than 20% and there not been a recession right. in 66 and 87. Uh, so pocketbook issues are, are a big driver of votes. And depending on how this plays out, uh, Ohio could be back in play this fall in a Biden-Trump race. Okay. Terry, what do you think? Well, Ohio could be maybe closer to being back in play, but you've still got the Arizonas, the Pennsylvanias, North the Michigan. Carolina. Yeah, yeah there's a yeah. lot of other states that are higher priority. And also the challenge with Ohio, with our seven different media markets, Ohio's an expensive state to play in. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking nationally, where do you focus your money? I still think other states are going to be higher priority. And again, they look at the past results. There's a lots of parts of Ohio. I mean, one of the reasons Mike DeWine is governor is because people forget outside the big cities, there's an awful lot of people in rural and mid-sized communities who are much more conservative and are not going to necessarily buy. That's going to have to wrap it up on the Sunday morning. Thank you all for being here. That's again Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. What if being in recovery from a mental or substance use disorder was something we proudly showed the world? You might be surprised. Millions of people are in recovery, sharing hope, help, and support with family, friends, and community. Join the Voices for Recovery. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We parents hear our kids say lots of things that can get us pretty worked up. Things like, Look, Mom, no hands. And, Ouch, that hurts. Look, you'll never completely stop worrying about your kids. But you can breathe a little easier with free or low-cost health insurance through Medicaid and CHIP programs in your state. 
The truth is, they're covering more kids and teens than ever before. So even if you've applied in the past, even if you don't qualify, your kids can now be eligible for regular doctor and dentist visits, prescriptions, and more. So the next time you hear, Ooh, I don't feel so good. Relax. Your kids can be covered. Get us kids covered today. Families of four earning up to $49,200 a year or more may qualify. Just go to insurekidsnow.gov or call 1-877-KIDS-NOW. That's 1-877-543-7669. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Columbus Perspective on Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Mr. Michael Cook. He is the chief of the Public Information Office at the U.S. Census Bureau. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the 2020 census. Thanks for talking to us. It's beginning to wind up. What's the status with it at this point? What's going on? Well, we have invitations that are hitting mailboxes across the country, and I'm happy to report that we have already received 6.5 million responses online for the 2020 census. Wow. Okay. So folks have been getting uh, notices in the mail. What is it that people are getting in the mail? The invitation letters that people are getting in the mail, they're directing them uh, to our online response uh, tool to respond to the census. So it's the questionnaire online. In addition to that, um, they're given a 1-800 number uh, to reach out to our telephone centers to conduct the census online, or through those toll-free numbers, they can get assistance in in navigating the, the online response option. There are parts of the country, though, in their first mailer, they're actually receiving the questionnaire due to the data that we collect that shows that there's a low internet connectivity in that area. But um, starting uh, March 12th, they started hitting mailboxes, and Thursday and Friday of this week, more invitation letters will be, re- will be received across the country. So is everybody uh, eligible to just do everything online, or are there uh, long forms or, or special forms that some people are filling out in a different way? This decade, um, everyone has the ability um, to respond online. You can respond online uh, when you get that invitation through an ID, or you can respond without that invitation letter with a non-ID option. So 2020census.gov is the website that people should go to to learn more about the census and to respond. It happens only once every 10 years. It shapes the future of your community for the next 10 years, um, shaping and, and having billions of dollars of public funding distributed annually to local communities. Obviously, with the coronavirus situation, there's concern about just about everything that's going on right now. What is, uh, how is that impacting the Census Bureau? Well, we're carefully monitoring that situation, working with uh, national and local health authorities, including the CDC. We're adapting our operations where needed to make sure we get a a complete count and we count the same population correctly and accurately. Um, What that means to you is that when you do receive the invitation in the mail, we ask that you respond early and as soon as possible online by phone or, or by mail. Is it complicating uh, the count? Because, you know, there's a lot of students, uh, college students, that have been displaced in the last couple of weeks. We have a significant contingency plan in, in place, $2 billion, that's, that, is, that allows us to manage our operations in different ways. So we are currently monitoring that situation. Um, if we need to alter the timing in which we collect information for that population, we will. Um, but we will get a complete and accurate count of college students. 
Okay. And uh, what about uh, workers? Uh, Do you still need folks to work for the census? Yes, we have reached our applicate pool target of 2.7 million applicants. Um, We plan to uh, conduct and to continue conducting the application process to make sure that we have enough people that are hired that have to go door-to-door during our non-response follow-up operation later in the in the spring. But we are com- completely confident that we will get a complete and accurate count um, and work with all uh, parties. Uh, partners are essential in this, in this for us. Um, communicating uh, to the public as things change, as we adapt, um, that uh, we are conducting the census. You can still respond online. It's easy and it's safe and it's important and it impacts your life. Talking with Michael Cook, chief of the Public Information Office at the U.S. Census Bureau. So this phase right now where folks are getting reminders in the mail to go online and and, uh, fill out the census, how long is this phase underway and then when does the door-to-door follow-up begin? We started, um, invitations started hitting mailboxes March 12th. Um, There's another set of mailers that will hit invitations this Thursday and Friday, um, March 19th and March 20th. Um, Everyone has the ability to respond for the duration of the count. Um, So I want to encourage folks um, that do get invited to respond, to respond early um, to to respond online, by phone, and by mail. Um, but we will continue to conduct this count all the way through July 31st. Okay, and if you don't respond, then when will someone come knocking? Our non-response follow-up operation where we knock on doors to ensure that people um, can actually uh, are counted to get an accurate count, it starts on April the 23rd. Um, we will be uh, working with our partners, um, local jurisdictions, to ensure that areas that are impacted by uh, COVID-19, that we are complying with social distancing. Um, for us, there's two principles to our account. We want to ensure the safety uh, and wellness of our staff and the public, while also balancing knowing that we have to and we're obligated to um, conduct the count completely and accurately and to turn over um, apportionment counts by December 31st of, of this year. Okay, Michael Cook with the Census Bureau. Anything else you'd like to add? 2020census.gov is the website for people to visit um, to learn more about the census, and it's that important. It helps shape your future, um, not only for the next 10 years, but each year, billions of dollars flows down to the local level that impacts your life, as well as your political representation in Congress. Okay, Michael, thanks so much for the information and your time today. Thank you. Someone you know may be suffering from severe emotional pain. Important signs to recognize include changes in behavior, hopelessness, acting withdrawn, agitation, poor self-care. Starting a conversation could save a life. Hi, I'm Dr. Brad Wenstrup, congressman from Ohio. Look for these critical signs in those around you. Then take a moment to show you care. Start a conversation. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. If you came across a child struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes. Their age. Where they speak. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America. 200 food banks strong. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. 
Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Rita Sorenen, who is the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. I think most people in Columbus, I think, are aware of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. You have been around for a long time now. We have. The foundation has been in place since 1992, um, so that I I think although people here in Columbus and Franklin County may know a little bit about us, um, nationally we're still trying to make sure that as a national nonprofit public charity, um, this country is aware of the work that we do. And what is it you do? What is the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption? So the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is a national nonprofit public charity. And I think particularly around here, sometimes we're mistaken for a corporate charity because of our close relationship with the Wendy's company or a family charity because of the name, the Dave Thomas uh, in our name. But, But we were set up by Dave Thomas as a nonprofit public charity to focus exclusively on children in foster care who are waiting to be adopted. They've been freed for adoption. They are there through no fault of their own. They've been abused or neglected or abandoned. And um, that their their case has um, gone through the court system and gone through the child welfare system and has reached such a level that the family cannot safely take care of this child. And so the courts do what they really don't like to do, but permanently sever that relationship between parent and child. And that's where the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption steps in and works on raising awareness about the number of children locally and across the nation who are in that position of simply waiting for an adoptive family to step forward. And then we have worked very hard at developing and promoting evidence-based programs that quickly and effectively move children out of foster care and into adoptive homes. And we'll get more into that as we go on. Uh, Dave Thomas himself, uh, this was personal for him. It was very personal. Dave Thomas was adopted, um, and he was adopted as an infant, but he experienced many of the things that particularly our older youth in foster care experience. His adoptive mother passed away, so he was raised by his father, but his father was a bit of an itinerant worker moving from place to place and job to job. So ultimately, during the day and, and throughout his life, he was raised by his grandmother. He left home at 16 and struck out on his own and committed to um, making the best business that he could make and certainly succeeded in that in developing Wendy's uh, restaurants and, and the great product that, that he developed. But he really remembered that notion of feeling um, without family at times and yet understanding the value of family. So very much wanted to create an organization that responds to, in 1992, a discussion that wasn't very robust to the child welfare system, children in foster care, children in foster care waiting to be adopted and wanted the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption to fill that gap and begin to highlight um, who these children are, what the system is, and why, as a country, we need to step forward and focus more on this cause. Dave Thomas uh, unfortunately passed away in 2002, and folks, uh, younger adults now, don't know what a, a humble and unbelievable pitchman he was for Wendy's. And I think that when the stories came out about him, it was it was very eye-opening. And he seemed like the perfect kind of person to show that adoption is not the end of a road for someone. That's exactly it. And, and became that perfect spokesperson. In fact, 
through the first few years of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, he committed to raising policymakers' awareness about this issue so that good policy could be put in place and went and walked the halls of Congress in D.C. And, and, you know, congressmen and women, senators, representatives, presidents met with them all, and they all would step back and want to get his autograph and, and would get shy around him because he was such a celebrity as a result of the work that they had done through the Wendy's commercials. But he was absolutely passionate about simply using that celebrity to elevate this cause. He didn't really care about the celebrity. In fact, he kind of saw it as a bother, but understood that value of using his celebrity to bring attention to this cause. So an incredible man who dedicated, particularly later in his life, and in fact, his, his family as well. His um, Lorraine, Lorraine, his wife, just passed away uh, last week and was similarly committed to this notion of focusing on foster care adoption, doing everything that we can do, um, both in her home state of Florida and across the nation. Talking with Rita Sorenen, she's the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And one thing to make clear that uh, maybe some folks might get mixed up on from time to time, you're not, the foundation is not an adoption agency, but work with agencies. That's right. We're not an adoption agency, but we put programs in place and fund them. We're a grant-making organization as well. So the resources that we generate, we dedicate back to those organizations whose job is to um, supervise foster care, make sure children are well cared for when they're in foster care. But if they have to be adopted, if that step has been taken, then we fund those organizations that use one of our evidence-based programs that gets them into adoptive homes, particularly those organizations that focus on this target population of children who are most at risk of turning 18 in foster care and leaving without an adoptive family. And you uh, also have a lot of uh, kind of behind-the-scenes knowledge and and awareness about all this. You were the executive director of CASA, the court-appointed special advocates. That's right. I was for a number of years here in Franklin County and really um, sort of ground my teeth on the, 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 the intricacies and the complexities of the juvenile justice system, the child welfare system, the interactions between all of those hefty systems that our children have to navigate, health care, education, child welfare, juvenile justice, and all of the players that surround them. And it helped us really hone here our mission of how do we focus on individual children? How do we make sure that the child is the core of activity while all those other agencies and complexities and forms and procedures circle around them? How do we bring it all back to one child at a time, making sure they have every service available to them so that they can grow and thrive in a family like we would expect from our own children, like our own family? Well, it seems like over the last 20, 30 years that society has become a lot more open and accepting of who can adopt. That's right. Absolutely. That um, dynamic of who steps forward to adopt. And there are many kinds of adoption. There's certainly infant adoption, international adoption. Our exclusive focus is foster care adoption. Those vulnerable children and youth who need families. And we've seen a, 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 a radical shift 
um, particularly in the past couple of decades, about agencies in particularly in particular accepting um, different kinds of parents who step forward, so that today single parents can adopt, and older folks perhaps have already raised children but still have room in their heart or their home, and 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 think, you know what, I could I could adopt an older youth, I could adopt a 12 year old or a 13 year old. I don't want to deal with diapers anymore or midnight feedings, but I know how you know I've raised children, so I know how to raise a child. Extended family members can step forward and uh, adopt children if they're in foster care. I think there used to be this notion that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If a child's in care because their biological family abused them and the courts have permanently separated, the agencies used to look at extended family as part of that negative process, when to the contrary, grandparents are adopting, siblings are adopting, aunts and uncles are adopting, and then certainly same-sex couples are stepping forward and adopting as well. So it is a wide range of adults who are viable, who are safe, and who are willing to make sure that our children in foster care don't linger. Look, last year, 20,000-plus children turned 18 and left foster care without a family. So we need to make sure that every family that's viable, safe, and willing uh, is able to be supported in the adoptive process. Without uh, swimming in numbers, I wanted to get uh, some statistics from you in terms of things like that. The need is great. I guess there are, uh, what, 3,000 kids in Ohio that that are up for adoption. There are. There are 3,000 children today, as we're talking, who are simply waiting for their adoptive family. And that's a fairly large number for a state. Um, Nationally, there are 125,000 children who are waiting for an adoptive family. So it's something that these children are right here in our backyard, and, and we support and celebrate however adoptive families come together. But what we want people to do if they're thinking about adoption, while they're thinking about infant or international, we simply want them to also know that there are children right here in Columbus, right here in Franklin County, who are ready, willing, and will make the best possible family for them as well. Talking with Rita Sorenen, she's president and CEO, Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Uh, I want to talk to you about Wendy's Wonderful Kids because you have yeah. a, a very ambitious expansion plan for that. And when I looked at a map, I saw that Ontario is on that as well. Are you active That's on this right. in Canada? We are. There is a separate Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption Canada. There's not staff for it, but it's funded separately with a different board of trustees, so all the dollars raised in Canada stay in Canada. And we are doing um, parallel mission and vision and activities to make sure that, because the systems are very similar across the border in the United States and Canada, so our programs can be very similar. That's interesting, though, to be able to you know, look at different policies and maybe see where something might be better in one area than another. Absolutely. In Ontario, quite honestly, they have done a much better job at stepping forward and supporting children who are in foster care or children who have been adopted for an extended period of time. It's much shorter here in the States. And so there are times when we look both ways, you know, Canada to the U.S. and U.S. to Canada for where are the best policies? Frankly, it doesn't matter what border defines a child. How do we best support a child and a family that is in this circumstance? And as we talk about Wendy's Wonderful Kids, Wendy's is not a sole sponsor and financial backer of this whole thing. 
That's right. As a nonprofit organization, we depend on the generosity of lots of donors and organizations. But when this organization started out in 1992, they were one of the few first funders. So the restaurant, uh, uh, the, the franchisees and, and corporate employees and, and suppliers of the Wendy's company stepped forward and said, how can we help this cause? The more dollars that are generated, the more that can go into programs and awareness to elevate this cause and drive children out of foster care and into adoptive homes. So particularly within the franchise stores, in the restaurants, there are a lot of fundraising activities that occur that directly support the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And like I said earlier, I think we're often mistaken for a corporate foundation because of that relationship. And we're proud. We're absolutely proud of promoting um, our, that relationship. And, and Wendy's Wonderful Kids, one of our signature programs, um, carries that brand because um, they have been so responsive to how do we increase our programs and services? Well, we can do it through fundraising in the restaurants. So we're always really excited about making sure that people know this partnership is strong and profound um, and that there are others that can step in, too. Um, there's lots of room for people to participate in this activity. And the Wendy's Wonderful Kids uh, plan, it's a 12-year business plan, and you're three years into it? That's right. Um, we've been doing the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program. We started out as a pilot test of how do we do a better job of making sure that those children most at risk of aging out of foster care with a family, children age nine and older, children in sibling groups, children with special needs, children who've been in foster care for so long that they've given up on themselves, and so they oppose any efforts to find them an adoptive family. How do we do a better job for these children? Because we were still seeing year over year over year, 20,000 plus children aging out of foster care. So we created a program that, that really brings the focus to the individual child. Um, we said we will give grant organizations, uh, those, those child welfare adoption organizations, to implement this model that we believe will be successful, and let's test it, and let's see if it's wor- it works, and let's see if we can get more children adopted, particularly in that target population. So we started as a pilot in seven cities in 2004. The Wendy's company stepped in and helped us fundraise significantly in the restaurants, so we called it Wendy's Wonderful Kids. But we realized we had something um, and began to identify how we could take this program to scale in states. In other words, how do we hire enough through our grant program, enough of these Wendy's Wonderful Kids adoption recruiters, that's what we call them, who implement this program in adoption organizations, carry a smaller caseload of children, and aggressively work to get them adopted. Um, And we began to identify those target populations in states and, and noting, for example, here in Ohio, we have a relationship with the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services, a a co-investment relationship. We still help fund the program, but the majority of the funding comes from the Ohio Department to the foundation and then back out to the 88 counties and their agencies in order to implement this program. We are so thrilled that through that partnership, it helped us establish a national scaling plan. So we have a very aggressive plan that uh, over 12 years will have every state and the District of Columbia scaled in order to serve those children most at risk of aging out of care. We're also implementing a similar program across Canada, and we have a relationship with uh, the Ministry of Ontario. So we're excited about it, but Ohio really set the stage. We just a few weeks ago celebrated a 1,000 adoptions that have happened as a direct result of Wendy's Wonderful Kids and the 50-plus recruiters that are working across the state. So it's significantly reducing that older youth population who are waiting to be adopted in Ohio and in the now um, eight states across the United States that we are scaled in and, and the others that we're beginning to target.
That's tremendous. So when adoption agencies receive grants from your foundation, let's say they're new on board to it, and and then you train using evidence-based material, you train their recruiters. Is it dramatically different than what they may have gotten otherwise? Are you doing things uh, that are kind of cutting edge or, or unusual or anything? Frequently, it is dramatically different. In this country, for the longest time, when trying to get children from foster care adopted, we defaulted to public displays. So websites or news programs where a child would be highlighted by a news anchor or photo galleries. In other words, the children, in a way, had to sell themselves. Um, And we hoped that charismatically, that when people are thinking of adopting, they go to a website, they see a child's face, and they think, oh, there's my child. And, And And sometimes that magic happens. But when we focus again on this target population, older children, um, children who've been in care for years, children who are in sibling groups, children who may have special needs, this notion of them having to sell themselves um, isn't productive. It doesn't work. And in fact, it may be counterproductive when you think about a child who knows they're on a website or they've been on a newscast. And what happens when they don't get adopted? What's our further message to them, in addition to the trauma they've already experienced by being separated from their families, by being in a stranger's home, by being in foster care, we've now layered another trauma on them that that subtly says to them, there's something about you that you didn't get chosen. You're not right. you're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not something. And that's the last thing we want to do. So the child-focused recruitment program, that's sort of the, the model under the brand of Wendy's Wonderful Kids, turns that on its head and says, it's not the child's responsibility to find themselves a family. It's our responsibility. It's, it's the adult's responsibility. And so the recruiters, if they take a grant from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, commit to carrying smaller caseloads of these children, of intimately getting to know who this child is, what their journey through foster care has been, doing a deep dive into their case files that because they've been in care for years are quite thick with potential adoptive resources. So they'll hear from the child who's important in their life. It might be a former foster parent, um, an uncle that lives you know, across the state, uh, a best friend's family. They'll see in the case file adults who have surrounded this child while they've been in care, and they're more likely to find a perfect family for the child that's and and someone that's already known to the child so that we're not creating another layer of trauma by asking a child to get used to another strange family, another school, another set of friends and rules and regulations. So we've seen great success with this, but we also put in place a five-year rigorous evaluation of the program. And at the end of five years, what that told us is, on average, this model is about one and a half times uh, more effective than any other business as usual. But for this target population of children, older youth in particular, it's up to three times more likely to drive a child into an adoptive home. So behind the best practice of just doing good social work on behalf of a child is an evidence-based result that says that this program works. And that's really what pushed us to say we must get this in the hands of every state, of every child worker um, that works on behalf of children to get them adopted because this is what works and it's what should be best practice. And so we're working to, like Ohio, with those states to, to embed it, scale it, and simply have it become business as usual. And yes, we provide rigorous training and technical support and data management and ongoing evaluation to make sure that this stays um, sort of best in class in how we make sure this population of children have their chance at permanency and a forever home.
I recall not long ago doing uh, a, an adoption-based interview with an agency, and they were talking about statistics among states where kids are in foster care through family or, you know, somebody that they know. And and apparently policies are very different from state to state because the numbers were wildly different from each other yeah. in terms yeah. of some, some states put a, a great focus on trying to get kids in with other family members, and in other states, few of them seem to get there. That's exactly right. And, and we, we always want, you know, there's that first circle around a child, and that's extended family members. That's exactly in their community, hopefully, where a child should be, where, they're, where they can identify the best, where, where their, their sense of community and family stays intact. But if there are no family members who step forward, or if a state's not doing a good job about that, then we tend to go to that next circle around that child, and it's other people who are known to the child, foster families or teachers, friends, families, that kind of thing. But absolutely, if at all possible, one of the policy issues is we also have to then support those families to care for that child in the same way that we would support um, a stranger who's caring for the child. And states are still coming along in different ways of making sure that families have the same kind of pre- and post-adoption supports that anyone else would. Talking with Rita Sorenen, she's president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Kids who have gone through two or three or maybe more foster parents, uh, I just can't imagine the the kind of stress and constant trial they must feel like they're under. Are are they told by uh, these foster agencies or by the parents, you know, you you might be adopted by them, but maybe not? I mean, are are they always on the edge or, or do they try to avoid telling the kids that? It depends on how well an organization does in supporting and nurturing and um, uh, making sure that a child feels protected and safe. And and it varies widely um, from agency to agency, from county to county, from state to state. Mm -hmm. The best possible practice is to keep a child in in a single environment without multiple moves, but frequently that, that just doesn't happen. And so if that's not the case, then there needs to be consistent um, staff around that child, and, and that's another challenge in child welfare is the constant turnover of staff. And so we think of, you know, what's what that impact on the agency, but, but we have to keep in mind what's the impact on a child who's seen three different social workers in the past year, right. um, who goes to court and sees, you know, a different judge every time, who moves from home to home. It, it's And that's what Wendy's Wonderful Kids is doing, because when those recruiters, the Wendy's Wonderful Kids recruiters are working with the child, they may be the only constant in that child's life and can be honest with them and can share, here's what I believe the next step is, but we're going to work together to get there. So engages the youth, depending on their age, certainly, but engages the youth in the process so that they are aware of what's going on and they're not traumatized by a sudden move, a sudden, you know, something happening in their life yet again. Talking with Rita and she's president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Rita, if folks want to find out more about uh, what your foundation does and how to help, what do they do? Two, two great places, and certainly the website is robust with information, with free resources, with links to other organizations, with links to the states um, that we're, we're serving, um, and that's DaveThomasFoundation.org. They can also call our 800 line, 1-800-ASK, A-S-K, 
DTFA, and we can, again, guide them to uh, questions, to organizations that they might want to work with in their in their area, other ways to help. You know, not everybody's ready to be a foster or adoptive parent, but there's so many ways to help. Becoming a mentor, a volunteer for an agency, just sharing information at their place of business, at their place of worship, and helping us alert the public to this deed for uh, focusing on children in foster care. That's terrific work. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add? I think just that there are so many resources available in so many ways. You know, another way is we support an adoption-friendly workplace. If, um, if, if someone is at a workplace where they give benefits to families that are formed through birth, they need to think about what benefits do they give to families who are formed through adoption. Um, we support a National Adoption Day initiative every year, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and how people can get engaged in that process. So lots of ways, again, that people can get involved in this conversation. It doesn't have to feel threatening or scary. The child welfare system is complex, but stepping in, putting a toe in, is a great way to simply help a child in need. Rita Sorman, again, President and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Very interesting. Uh, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.